Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, coming to you from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas in beautiful downtown Washington, D.C. At the risk of sounding like a rerun, President Biden and congressional Democrats remain in negotiations over the bipartisan infrastructure package at about $1 trillion and the larger social spending bill known as Build Back Better, price tag unknown, but currently in the $2 trillion range. It seems one can't go without the other, but the infrastructure package is once again teed up for a vote here at the end of October. And everything, everything else has been punted to the end of the year. Government funding, the debt limit, the annual defense bill. Let's all have a Merry Christmas. Supply chains cooperating. My erstwhile and jolly colleagues here at the firm are with me once again to break it all down. Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Thomas. Bruce, David, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks, Dean. Thank you, Dean. Well, how about it, David? You're the Democrat and Democrats have an agreement to agree. Is this actually progress as they all file back into town from the recess or is it a false dawn? What have I been telling you all along, both of you? Like, a deal is going to come. They have to get it done. And uh, we're at the end stages here. Uh, So, you know, meetings uh, all day yesterday at the White House into the evening with all parties with interest here. So you had the progressives uh, meeting with the president. You had the moderates meeting with the president. Phone calls to Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema Gage, pretty much everybody involved here. And and from all uh, discussions I've had uh, since those meetings, it sounds like we are close uh, I expect we're going to have a uh, deal announced uh, soon in, uh, you know, maybe just a matter of a couple of days here uh, on this uh, much sought after framework on the uh, budget reconciliation package. And that would allow for uh, the vote to go forward on infrastructure before the end of the month. It'd be a huge accomplishment to get that. The president is engaged. That is uh, what some complaints from Democrats were, that he wasn't down in the down in the mud with uh, with all of them on this negotiation. Well, he's in there now, and uh, I think they're going to come out with the deal pretty soon here in the next couple of days. You know, uh, failure is not an option, but it is a possibility. And I do think we need to beware the progressive Twitter base, which is already upset, is going to have to swallow all kind of compromises. What's frustrating to me, Dean, and I know to you as well, is that there's a bunch of bipartisan deals out there. We saw bipartisanship passing legislation in the Senate, 68 senators on the infrastructure bill. That's a bipartisan deal that's being held hostage to a partisan deal in the House. The defense package will be bipartisan. The China bill with the critical chips funding is bipartisan and passed the Senate. Well, David, how about that? I mean, the the, the vote on the bipartisan infrastructure package is set for All Hallows' Eve, October 31st, is a framework, is an agreement on a top-line number enough for progressives to let that bill go? Uh, I, I, I think what I've noticed over the past 24 to 48 hours, uh, Dean, is a rebuilding of the trust between the sides. And I think this is where Joe Biden puts his uh, many decades of, of Washington experience to work. Uh, getting the sides to, to work together to, to to find common ground here, I think they're close. And so I think that that I, I'm not sure exactly what that framework is going to look like, uh, how detailed it's going to be, but I think it's probably enough to go forward on the 31st. As far as Bruce is uh, referring to uh, bipartisanship, look, bipartisanship works both ways here, and I don't think we're going to see any bipartisanship coming out of the House. My understanding is that Leader McCarthy is already whipping against the infrastructure bill. They had 19.
19 Republican senators vote for the infrastructure bill in the Senate, I think you'll be lucky to get five members to vote in the House, five Republicans to, to vote for the infrastructure bill. Uh, Leader Pelosi is, uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi is going to have to do it on her own. I think the deal was McCarthy will let those Republicans go. Pelosi has to get to 218 by herself on the floor and then and then and then releases the Republicans that want to vote for it. Pelosi uh, always manages to get to 218 on her own here. It's Republican <laughs> speakers that have trouble getting to 218. <laughs> well, no bipartisan deal, Republican or Democrat, goes without the senior senator from Arizona having his or her say. You got her in your camp, too? Look, I think, uh, you know, Senator Cinema uh, keeps her counsel so close that everybody's wondering uh, exactly where she stands uh, on the final deal here, unlike uh, Senator Manchin, who is much more uh, sort of comfortable and seems to like mixing it up uh, with the press in the hallways. Uh, Senator Simmons doesn't. My understanding that she is, is talking to the president directly and his senior team. Um, she may be the last piece of the puzzle uh, to get this over the uh, finish line here, but uh, I think at the end of the day, she'll be there. Well, you, you mentioned the president's involvement here, which which seems to have moved things along. And, and the president's greatest strength is uh, any president's greatest strength is their political capital. Uh, at least by the polling, President Biden seems to be in something of a freefall independence. Uh, the, the Afghanistan pullout seemed to uh, begin a snowball effect of some loss of support. We've got some indicators coming up in these off-year gubernatorial elections uh, in Virginia and New Jersey have historically been indicators of where a first-year president stands going into the midterms. We're all Maryland residents, but uh, what do you guys see going on here across the bridge? Well, so you're right, uh, although, Dino, I think in your setup there, the president's polling started falling mid-Q2 into Q3 as a result of the Delta uh, variant uh, going around. So COVID's number one, in part, the July 4th kind of declare independence from COVID uh, was a little premature, especially if you looked at what was happening with Delta in India and the UK. You're right, Afghanistan, even though polling suggests the majority of Americans don't want troops there anymore, the, the execution of the withdrawal was uh, uh, disapproved in a bipartisan way. You've got uh, the crisis on the border that they won't call a crisis, but it is the worst in 20 years. You know, some pushback against political correctness, some against debt, as well as the media avoidance strategy by the uh, Biden White House, which is far more of a don't talk to the mainstream media than Trump ever had, at least in his first year. All of that has created a pretty severe backlash against president's approvals. Normally, the governorship in Virginia goes opposite to whoever is holding the White House. When Trump was holding the White House, the Democrats managed to avoid that. But Virginia is becoming a more and more blue state. It's long felt like it's the Mackers to lose, but Youngkin's a very well-funded uh, candidate who's uh, who's running very appealing ads. Uh, the polling suggests it's uh, within the margin of error or just outside for the Dems. So uh, in the war biggest cliche of all time, it all comes down to turnout. Uh, the Dems ought to be able to do it, but they have rolled in every fire truck in 10 states from President Obama to uh, Nancy Pelosi to try to beg Democrats to turn out. Yeah, I think that's uh, I, I think that's right, Bruce. I think I think uh, McAuliffe uh, probably pulls this out again because I do think uh, Virginia is a little bit more blue than purple uh, these days here. But uh, look, but it's going to be close here. I think as, as far as the White House, they're they're playing the long game here, and they know that continued economic recovery and getting COVID under control is is the way that you know the president will be judged at the end of the day. So that's what they continue to be sort of laser like focused on. 
if you know the White House and Congress can get a deal done on infrastructure and on reconciliation and keep the government opened and not default on the debt. That's four pretty big things to check off the list before December 31st. But if they can get all those done, I suspect the numbers start to, to turn around here for the president. It will be, uh, I, I don't want to leapfrog too much into the midterms here. As, as Bruce has discussed many times before, you know, presidents in their first midterms don't do very well. Uh, but I think if, if uh, the White House can get those four things done, they've got a fighting chance to have a, you know, a pretty good message going into the midterm year. The one counter to that, though, DT, to remember, if you look legislatively, President Obama in his first two years had a ton of accomplishments, you know, starting with the Affordable Care Act, but, you know, regulating finances, the stimulus, lots of positive things. He got destroyed in the midterms in the House. And, and Donald Trump had the biggest tax cut in a generation. And, uh, and he also lost the House. Bill Clinton got a lot done and, and some things undone. It doesn't seem that there's an automatic tie between if you get all of the things on your punch list that you campaigned on done, the electorate rewards you. If anything, often your base, think about the base here, the Democratic base will either be satisfied or pissed at other Democrats. Neither of which help you in midterms. Yeah, no, it's a, it's it's uh, it's not going to be easy. I'm not I'm not suggesting uh, that here. You know, the person who beat the trend there, of course, was was President George W. Bush in, in his first midterm, where he uh, managed to pick up seats, and that was in the aftermath of the 9/11 attacks here. A, a really a global, worldwide, you know, concern in the fall of 2001. Uh, we've got another global crisis going on right now with uh, with COVID here. Uh, what the I think the White House is betting on, and, and I happen to agree with this, is if COVID is more under control a year from now, uh, the economy is roaring back. He, you know, the White House has a fighting chance to hang on to the House, to hang on to the Senate here, uh, because uh, Joe Biden will have delivered on, on what he, he promised to do during his campaign. If the Democrats pull this out and hold hold a three seat majority in the house, despite redistricting, despite the politics going against uh, the president's first midterm, it will be one of the greatest political feats in, in the modern era. And if McAuliffe pulls out the governor's race in Virginia, it will be despite having epically stepped in it over his comments around parents and schools. And despite having one of the worst politician nicknames I've ever heard, the macker, where did, where, did, where did that come from? <laughs> but, you know, you've got some canaries in the coal mine here. Representative John Yarmuth of Kentucky, David Price of North Carolina, Mike Doyle of Pennsylvania, uh, all announcing their retirements, uh, something you typically see ahead of a change of control in one of the chambers. Bruce, let's turn to a topic we've talked about a lot here, and that's the tech lash, this, this backlash against the large technology companies that Americans both can't seem to live without and, and love to hate, uh, particularly what we saw with Facebook over the last several weeks. We had whistleblower testimony before the Senate Commerce Committee, uh, which seemed fairly damaging, though uh, their stock price only went up. We've got now possible rebranding of Facebook. Uh, it worked for Philip Morris. Is this, is this rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, or is this just onward and upward, uh, despite all the Derman Strang in Washington. Well, look, as we've discussed, this is a real thing, um, and it's global. Uh, if you're a nerd like me, Ian Bremmer's new piece in Foreign Affairs is pretty brilliant, taking a look at the reality that 
in the 21st century, tech companies are more like nation states than ever before. Um, and they dominate the digital space in which we all increasingly live, but doesn't, you know, nobody has jurisdiction, territorial jurisdiction, traditional jurisdiction over it. So you're seeing in, uh, in India, in China, in the EU, and in the United States, both at the state level and at the federal level, efforts to try to think about, well, how do we rein this in? That's thought one. Thought two, this is not all tech. Americans love using technology. Congress is incredibly supportive of most tech. The two elements that are under the gun are the social media players, such as Facebook, and the dominant platforms, such as Amazon and Apple. And that's true also around the world, as opposed to, say, the chip makers, where everybody is asking, what can I do to put you in this car today, literally? Finally, what it all reflects around the world and in the United States is we don't have uh, a, a well-fleshed-out approach to consumer protection in the digital era. And whether it's teens online uh, or whether it's uh, you know your or my privacy or whether it's the belief that the rules governing who's allowed to speak and what they're allowed to say are opaque and ever-changing, the concerns are bipartisan and they're legitimate. We've got some indication that something might be coming here. Senator Grassley and Senator Klobuchar have introduced uh, bipartisan antitrust legislation. This is an idea uh, going after the, the large tech platform companies through the antitrust laws uh, that just seems to be gaining more and more steam. Do you think there's a chance we're going to see something in the antitrust vein legislatively in this Congress? I think there's a good chance. That's an area, again, where there is bipartisanship. And in this case, it's not tied to exclusively partisan things that'll make it harder to go. Uh, the biggest challenge with respect to antitrust is uh, many, particularly Republicans, but some of the new Democrats are worried about overdoing it, are worried about anger at Facebook, let's say, or at Amazon leading to something that has economy-wide implications that will be bad for recovery and for jobs. So antitrust isn't just social media platforms. Uh, and so they're trying to be, uh, they're trying to identify scalpels. But concurrent with this, of course, you have a very active Department of Justice and a very active Federal Trade Commission where my colleague David Thomas used to roam the halls uh, and I would expect, regardless of legislative activity, to see them active. Yeah, I'm. I'm well, two things here. One is, Bruce, I agree with you on the um, the legislative activity here. Uh, is there enough momentum to get something to the president's desk? I'm not sure we're there yet, but boy, I think we're going to see a lot more hearings. Uh, members really do seem to be educated on these issues at this point, thinking a lot about them. The bipartisan work in the you know, Senate Judiciary Committee uh, doesn't happen often. So I think the Klobuchar-Grassley bill will have some legs on it. As far as what's going on over at the commission with the uh, new chair, uh, Lena Khan, uh, and others in the administration, I think you're just going to see more and more robust oversight of the antitrust laws. Uh, that's something that's going to come over the next uh, couple of years. Let's look overseas for a moment, and, and particularly what's going on with China. What is going on with China? President Xi continues to cement his power uh, through a corporate and cultural crackdown. They've got this major corporate default uh, that seems to be happening without a lot of insight into how that's affecting the Chinese economy. And then you add on top of that, this saber rattling, uh, maybe we're beyond saber rattling with Taiwan, uh, a hypersonic intercontinental ballistic missile uh, that apparently circled the globe. You know, I had, Bruce, I had uh, Dan Nathan of CNBC's Fast Money on uh, just recently. And I asked him if all this was a sign of Chinese strength or Chinese weakness. He seemed to think it's Chinese strength, but 
I don't know that I agree with that. What's your take? Well, I think both can be true at the same time. And in this case, it is. I mean, what I'm seeing in China is in part not all that distinct from what I'm seeing around the world, including here in the United States in part. Uh, it's it's It feels like populism with Chinese characteristics. President Xi's proposed a wealth tax. He suggested that big companies are too big and too big to fail is no longer going to be acceptable in the Chinese economy, Evergrande. Going after inequality, like uh, the ability of wealthier Chinese folks to, to have uh, paid tutoring, he's eliminated that. I mean, that's fairly overlapping with Bernie Sanders' agenda, though big important distinction to be fair to the Sanders folks. Uh, she is not good on human rights and Sanders works real hard to be good on human rights. But in terms of the economics, it's a, it's, it's a left-wing populism. It's a belief that their embrace of capitalism, which helped make them a global economic power, is undermining them socially as the as the communist um, socialist nation that they want to be. And given his powers, he's, uh, he's throwing elbows and trying to make sure that that uh, the capitalism of the last several decades, which made them appear a competitor of ours, uh, doesn't defeat the socialism that was uh, there before and, and is represented by the party. Well, looped into all of that is what the U.S. is experiencing in its supply chain. These container ships, many from Asia, are stacked up at our ports. These aerial photographs of the port of Los Angeles with uh, dozens and dozens of these giant container ships just waiting to unload. It all plays into the political issue of inflation. Should we just lower our expectations or is this a, a temporary bottleneck that's going to get straightened out? I think this is a, a temporary bottleneck here that is uh, as much a, a fallout from the global pandemic going on for 18 months as anything else here. Uh, you know, you see the administration obviously realizes that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. Big White House conference last week. You see, you know, major retailers, manufacturers uh, going into the White House to try to figure out how to work through Southern California, utilizing other ports around the country uh, and the Panama Canal to, to, to get goods and services to people. You know, but boy, you're right. Those pictures are stunning, Dean, when you see the uh, ships backed up off of uh, off of L.A. So uh, let's hope those things get moving again pretty soon. You know, it's it feels to me it's 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 uh, probably bigger than just a, uh, oh, there was COVID. It'll go away. you got supply problems and demand problems on the demand side. Over the last 18 months, we've preferenced goods over services because often we were stuck at home. And there's been massive extra dollars uh, sloshing around the global economy. So people have more money to spend almost at all levels. On the supply side, logistics are snarled largely as a result of COVID and shutdowns in places like Vietnam. But you also have global policies against fossil fuels have led to less investment in fossil fuels. And suddenly when the economy kicks back up, fossil fuels are getting more expensive. I mean, that's pretty straightforward Econ 101. Likewise with labor, uh, you know, the the, uh, the White House is encouraging a, uh, a, a strike tober, they call it. You know, we're, we're uh, even though unemployment's down at 4.8 percent, we're many millions of jobs below where we were. Um, that's going to encourage uh, further automation. But but the labor force is incredibly tight. I think some of these things will shake out, uh, but some of these things uh, run the risk. I don't think wages will go back. Uh, wage growth may slow down, but wages are going to be where they are. Maybe people will unretire, but it doesn't feel like they will. Uh, so I think there's a real risk of some of these things lasting. Well, guys, we'll wrap up on something a little more fun. The American League and National League Championship Series are ongoing. I was certain this was going to be a Dodgers-Red Sox World Series, but the Dodgers just climbed into the game uh, last night with an amazing late-game rally. 
the Astros and the Red Sox are now tied at two games apiece. Whatever happens, I think the Nats deserve an honorary pennant. Kyle Schwarber has just been on fire. Max Scherzer and Trey Turner playing for the Dodgers. Just been fun to watch. I still predict a Dodgers-Red Sox series. What do you guys say? Boy, I'm with you. Uh, I, I think you're right, and I agree. The Nats do deserve another ring if that's uh, where we end up. Uh, <laughs> I had the good luck of turning on the game, in the uh, the Dodger game, in the eighth inning last night with my daughter, and boy, what a rally and uh, and fun to watch. But the people in LA need to learn how to stick around to the end of the game here because there are way too many empty seats for a championship series. Fair weather fans in LA. That was pathetic. So I'll agree with you with one, uh, let's be honest about things. For the Nats to claim credit for Kyle Schwarber feels a little thin to me. (laughs) We had him for part of a season. I love the guy. I love them on the Cubs, but he doesn't feel like, whereas Scherzer, Trey Turner, they're not. uh, Admittedly, now Dodgers. Schwarber, more of a tourist. (laughs) Well, we shall see. And we'll talk about it all again when we get back together to cover all of 2021 in 21 minutes. Bruce Melman, David Thomas, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thanks, Dean. Thanks, Dean. (laughs) 